Good morning. It is good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Actually, we'll be starting in chapter 2 verse 10, but we are going to spend most of our time in chapter 3. <clears throat> Just a quick recap um, for, for those of you who might not have been here or if you, are, you might have forgotten. Jonah is this wonderful book about a prophet called, called Jonah and a great... Ah, there we go, fish or whale, whichever you prefer, but the, the text says fish. So in chapter 1... God gives Jonah an assignment. He tells him to go to Nineveh to speak a message to them. God says, go. Jonah said, no, I'm not going to do that. He had better plans for his life. Those better plans for his life, which was really rebellion against God, got him thrown overboard from the ship that he tried to take to run away from God's assignment. And after being thrown overboard, he got swallowed by a fish. He then manages to spend three days in said fish, and in chapter 2, he prays a prayer to God. The end of that prayer is where we are about to pick up. And in chapter 3, what I am hoping you and I see is a God who is merciful, a God who is most merciful. I'm praying and hoping that you and I are blown away by this God who is merciful to the very people who least deserve it. And that's Jonah chapter 3. Uh, in, in history, there's a story told of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Jim Elliot and his wife Elizabeth Elliot were American missionaries sent to Ecuador, specifically to the Akua or Akua tribe. And after listening to their message, the, pretty much the whole tribe, but especially certain elders and men of the tribe, decided to get rid of Jim Elliot and some of his friends. So in 1956, they killed Jim Elliot. And literally there's video or pictures of their bodies floating in the river in Ecuador. Now, his wife Elizabeth Elliot didn't immediately just go back home to America. Many people actually criticized her for not bringing the full force of international law for American citizens who had been so brutally killed. In, in, in other words, she didn't press hard against them. She, she stayed the hand of the law. In fact, she not only stayed among these tribesmen and tribeswomen, her daughter was raised there, and one of the little boys of the one who was assassinated, was raised by the person who plunged the spear into Jim Elliot's chest and killed him. And she not only forgave these people, she was kind to the very people who killed her husband, enabling them to better raise their own children and hers as she continued telling them the eternal life-giving gospel. That physical, human picture of mercy is nothing compared to what you're about to see in Jonah chapter 3 and really throughout the Bible of a God who shows even greater mercy to those who least deserve it. So Jonah from chapter 2 verse 10 will read to chapter 3 verse 10 
at the end of chapter 3, verse 10, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast Heard no flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they had turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Would you help me step out of your way? Would you speak to me and speak through me? to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so now, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, please make us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish. And in verse 9, he says some of the most beautiful words to end his prayer. Some of the most beautiful words, I think, in the whole Old Testament and in the Bible. Words that actually show up again in the book of Revelation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation, deliverance, comes from Yahweh. In fact, the word there is Yeshua, where you get the word Jesus from. That's the word for salvation. It comes from the Lord. And then in verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah, out upon the dry land. So put yourself in this scene right here. There's this fish that he's been in for three days. It swims close to shore because it's probably a really big fish and can't get really close. Opens its mouth and out comes Jonah like a projectile. And in my movie mind, I have the soundtrack in the back. I believe I can fly. (laughs) Splat on the sand. So here you are covered in fish guts with partially digested meat and seaweed, because even fish eat their vegetables, and you somehow have to start the walk, a long walk from the shoreline to Nineveh. Once you do get to said Nineveh, 
you discover that Nineveh has a nickname. Like any great city or big city, they have nicknames. Nairobi is called the city in the sun. New York is called the Big Apple. Nineveh's nickname was Fishtown. <laughs> so here you are, making friends in Nineveh. Hey, where are you from? I'm from Jerusalem. What's your name? Jonah. How did you get here? Funny story. <laughs> I came from the inside of a fish. <laughs> to which your friends would lean in and smell you and be like... Yeah, we believe you. You must have come from the inside of a fish. Here is Jonah, chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Don't miss that. The second time. Jonah is the only prophet in the Bible who had to have his assignment given to him twice. He's the only prophet in the Bible who had this given to him a second time. That tells you a couple of things. Number one, he's still the prophet of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. That formula, the word of the Lord, is only used of prophets. God hasn't ditched Jonah. Even though he brazenly, blatantly disobeyed God, God's not done with him. And not only does the word of the Lord come to the prophet of God, he is still the prophet of God who gets a second chance. A genuine, real, second chance. Note, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time and God says, arise, go to Nineveh. God doesn't hold his past against him. God doesn't show up to him and say, now Jonah, the last time we had this conversation, didn't go so great. His past is not brought up. God doesn't threaten his future either. God doesn't say, remember when you were in the belly of the fish, you made certain promises to me, you made certain vows. Now, now is the time you make good on it, right? He doesn't threaten his present or future. He doesn't say, Jonah, you better go to Nineveh or else, right? He doesn't do that with him. If you kind of grew up in the context I grew up in, and your mom came to your room and saw your bed was unmade, and she'd say, you better make that bed or else you'll see me, right? She doesn't mean that when she comes back into the room, you'll notice and say, ah, it is mother. That's not, that's not what she means. She means when I come back here, you will see a side of me you do not want to see. She has to threaten you in the present to ensure a future action, right? God doesn't do that with Jonah. The word of the Lord came to him a second time. He gets a second chance. Regardless of his past, he gets a second chance. Aren't you glad you serve a God of second chances? Of real, actual, legitimate Second chances. A God who doesn't bring your past up, it's forgiven. A God who secures your future, it is sure. A God who not only erased your past, he's rewriting your future. A God who you'll come and say, but I blew it last time. To which you will say, and here's your second chance. Arise. But I'm likely to blow it again. And here's your second chance. Arise. But God, you don't know how messed up I am. To which he's like, mm, I kind of do. And here's your, your second chance. Arise. Jonah gets this second chance. And God says to him, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Same people that he's been sent to. And Nineveh is called this great city. Why is it this great city? One, it's great in size. 
We are told it's, it took three days to walk across Nineveh, whether by ancient standards or modern standards. If it takes you three days to walk across a city, that's a big city. But it's not only great in size, it's great in its influence, particularly its evil influence. The word Nineveh would make the nations around shudder. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. These were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They had torn through Israel, Jonah's home, ripped it apart, conquered, murdered, plundered, done whatever they wanted, and they were now setting their sights on the southern kingdom of Judah. They were really, really, really bad guys who had no regard for human life, male, female, or children. They had no problem with murder and violence and evil and debauchery and all the things you can think of. They embodied that. There had never been a kingdom that evil. He's being sent to the murder capital. He's being sent as a despised Hebrew. Go to those guys. Same assignment. Same people, a great city, great in their evil, great in their size, and God is no respecter of their greatness. Whether they are a large city or small city, whether they are an evil city in major ways or in minor ways, he's still coming for that city and he sends Jonah to call out against it. And Jonah arose. At that point, Imagine if you're a seven or eight-year-old Hebrew boy or girl, and you're hearing this story being told, and it says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. The message I tell you. Verse 3. So Jonah arose. You'd probably grab your friends and go, eh. Because the last time we had Jonah arose, in chapter 1 he says, And Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. And here, Jonah arose, and you're like, oh boy. And he went to, oh boy, Nineveh. Ah, this time he obeyed. In fact, he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And on the one hand, you're like, yay, he obeyed. And on the other hand, you're like, ooh, he obeyed. He's probably not going to come back. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Something important to note about Jonah here, a small turn has happened in him. By the way, that's a word that, that you and I need to kind of keep in the back because he's going to show up a lot. Turn. Jonah has turned a small corner. The first time the word of the Lord came to him, he just said, nope, I'm out. Now the word of the Lord has come to him and he turns. He obeys. He doesn't just dismiss God brazenly. Now you could argue that's because the last time he said no, he kind of spent three nights in Hotel Fishtown. But, based on that same Jonah, he said no before. There's no reason why he can't say no now. Something has changed. It's small. It's not all the way there. But it has happened. And this is akin to what Pastor Aubrey was talking about last week. Little evidences of God's grace. Little evidences of sanctification. Little evidences that God is working in his children, even if he has to discipline his children working in them so that they won't say no to him, but they'll say yes to him for his glory and their own good. Jonah has turned. You'll see in chapter 4, he's not all the way there, but he has turned. And then scripture says that on day one, this three-day journey, on day one, he goes into the city, 
And he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Right? By the way, this day one turns out is going to be a very eventful day. He opens his mouth authoritatively, strongly, and says, yet 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown or overturned. It's eight words in English, just five words in Hebrew. Yeah, talk about a really bad sermon. It was mercifully short, but it was a really bad sermon. Five words, that's all he says? It almost feels like there's a part of Jonah that's going, okay, fine, you sent me to Nineveh, I'll go to Nineveh, but I will do the bare minimum. Just what I need to communicate to these guys to let them know you're going to destroy them, and so that I don't have to spend more time around these Ninevite clowns. Just the bare minimum. What do I need to get a pass? That's all I'm doing. He, it, seems, it seems he really doesn't want to be there. And we can kind of understand that, right? But interesting is not just how short what he says is. Interesting is that he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. There's that word again, or overthrown. Why 40 days? Couldn't God just vanquish them on the spot? I mean, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Ah, you start seeing something of God's mercy. That even with these people, he's giving them time. Even with these people who have obliterated, basically, his people, his beloved Jews, he's giving them time. 40 days. Come. 40 days. You have that before I overturn or overthrow or destroy you. You have 40 days. It's a picture of God's mercy. Think about it. Even God sending Jonah, that's an act of mercy. He didn't need to do that. He sent Jonah that they may be rescued. There's mercy in sending Jonah. There's mercy in how much time he's giving them. Child of God, you and I have been sent into this world as an act of God's mercy. That we may tell those who are not yet reconciled to him, 40 days, you have some time. Unbeliever, if you're in the room, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've never claimed to be a Christian, maybe you go to church and we're really glad you're here, you're a good person, but you don't claim to be a Christian, you don't claim to follow Jesus Christ, we are here to tell you, you have some time. As long as you're breathing, there's still time to get right with God, but we don't know how long that is. And neither do you. 40 days, or 40 minutes. And we are God's agents of mercy to tell you there's time to come to the cross. So Jonah gives this message, 40 more days, and it will be overturned. Again, back to you being that seven or eight-year-old Hebrew. And you're going, yeah, we know what these guys did in Israel. There's no way they can repent. See, they didn't have the whole story. They're being told the story. And they're, and they're like, Jonah said this, okay, we shall prepare for Jonah's funeral. It's been nice knowing Jonah. Then verse 5 happens. Look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 5. After Jonah gives his five-word Hebrew message, verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. That is not what we are expecting to hear in this story. Given everything we know about Assyria and Nineveh, 
the last thing we expect him to hear is, oh yeah, and they believed him. It's also the last thing we expect to hear given how atrocious this sermon was. They believed God? Yes. They not only believed God, they repented. They literally believed and repented. Those two inseparate, inseparable actions that they run to God, recognizing that whatever God is going to do to us, we have brought upon ourselves. We can only go to the very judge and beg for mercy and turn away, run away from everything else, our own evil ways. That's what this picture of putting on sackcloth is. And this wasn't a subset of the society doing this. From the greatest to the least of them, from the richest to the poor, men, women, boys, girls, the soldier and the social worker, whatever it was, all of them believed God and turned away from sin. Here's what's equally crazy about that. Remember, this is a monarchy. These citizens are used to getting their orders from the king. They're not even waiting for the king. They quite frankly don't care what the king says. All they know is God has spoken. We believe him. And we are turning away from our own ways. We will put on our sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. They did this. And right there you see something about the nature of faith and repentance. It's not something you earn. They weren't putting on sackcloth so that they could believe in God, so that they could earn God's favor. No, they believed what God said. Their repentance was specifically because they had believed. If that's what God has said, if that's who God is, yeah, we are turning away from stuff. The physical expression of that was sackcloth, was sitting in their sin from the greatest to the least of them and saying, this is wrong, we choose to believe God. They didn't wait for the king, but notice what happens in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. It outran Jonah. This is happening on day one. He didn't even have time to get to the king. The word was already doing the work, and it gets to the king of Nineveh. And right there you have to pause, because this is the king of an evil city and an evil empire. He could have killed the people who believed God. He, again, he's the king, he can do what he wants. He could have exiled them, he could have flogged them, he could have made an example of them. Instead, his repentance is even more spectacular than his people's. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. The first person we hear being told, arise is who? Talk to me. Jonah, thank you. Jonah is the first person we're told, arise. And he arose, but he arose to flee. Here is the pagan acting like the prophet. When he arose, he arose to repent. He arose from his throne. He left that behind. For him, he was no longer a king. He was another creature in the presence of his creator. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and went a step further. He sat in ashes, something even his people weren't doing. He recognized, I may be a king, but I'm in the presence of the king. And here, all I am is a creature, a sinner, in the hands of an angry God, to use one theologian's phrase. And he issues this proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh that he and the entire government, the king and his nobles, 
said, let neither man, nor beast, nor herd, nor flock taste anything. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Now, when I first read that, I was like, wait, and beast? Like the chickens were covered in sackcloth, and the goats, and the sheep, and the camels. That's overkill? No. That's repentance. They understood that to turn to God and turn away meant God doesn't just get me, he gets everything attached to me. All my animals, all my land, all my time, all my house, whatever it is, it's now his. They understood what repentance actually meant. It meant they have a new Lord. They have a new God. And they come to him fully. And think about what this must have sounded like if you walked into Nineveh on day two. When animals are hungry, and when they are not allowed to eat, at least some of the animals I'm used to, they start making a lot of noise. They get very restless. So you walk into Nineveh, the goats are complaining, the sheep are complaining, the camels are complaining, the people are complaining. It's like, what is going on here? Answer, they've just encountered God. And they recognize that the situation they're in demands that they cry out to him, have mercy on us, O God. The whole government was in on this. The whole nation was in on this. Every beast was in on this. And then listen to what the king says they should do. Verse 8, But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily, to God. Let them call out mightily to God. You know what's interesting? Jonah was told, call, a, call out against this city. The king says, call out to the God that we have just been told is against us. Call out mightily to him and let everyone turn from his evil way individually and the violence that is in his hand. He gets really specific about what Nineveh's problem is here. One of the reasons I love it when Ben Zamora prays prayers of confession, I, I jokingly call him the confessor. It's like he's been reading my diary or he has a spy come in my house, right? Because he gets really specific about our sins. Yes, yes. And these whole people knew we have been neck deep in evil ways and specifically violent ways individually. And it makes sense that the king is the one confessing because he seems to be the one who has encouraged, endorsed, and even enabled these evil and violent ways. And he specifically called it out. One of the gods of Assyria was called Ishtar. She was actually the goddess of debauchery, war, and violence. So in a sense, when the king says, let each turn away from his evil and his violence, in a sense he's saying, Leave the false gods and turn to serve the living God. Call out mightily. Turn away from our evil and violence. And then verse 9. Who knows? God may turn. So, let's do a, a little bit of a quick Bible study. We know that Jonah turned a little bit in his actions. We know that Jonah said... 40 more days, and this city will be overthrown or overturned. So every time you see the word turn in your Bible, just shout it out from verse 8. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone 
turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may and relent and from his fierce anger that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they, from their evil way, God relented. And the disaster, of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Did you catch it? Jonah turned a little. They turned completely. And when they turned, God turned. Interestingly, the word used for overthrown or overturned, there's a bit of a double entendre there. There's a double meaning. It can either mean overturned as in destroyed or turned over as in transformed. This merciful God always had it in mind to turn them over. So they think, oh, God relented, God changed. No, no, no. This was always God's predetermined response to repentance. If they turn, I will turn to them. And at that point, we kind, of, we kind of have to ask, okay, wait. Revival basically broke out. Revival broke out in an entire city, in every strata of the society, from a five-word sermon, from a really bad five-word sermon. Yes, because the power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. The person who wrote that, Paul, said, I came to you in trembling. That's not a really good quality in a preacher. Shaking like a leaf in the wind. But that's the pattern of the whole Bible. Paul was trembling, Peter was a hothead, Timothy was timid, Jeremiah was depressed, and Jonah was really sketchy. But revival broke out. Because the power is not in the messenger. It's in the message. God is a merciful God who saves. That faith comes by hearing the word about Christ. That when unbelievers, regardless of where they're from, what their socioeconomic strata, whether they're kings or paupers, when unbelievers hear that God sent his son into the world, lived a perfect life, died on behalf of sinners, and on that cross was taking the punishment for everyone who would ever believe in him, died, rose again, ascended, and offers eternal life, literally will relent of the judgment he owes them for their sin and turn from that to give them eternal life if they would turn away from their sin and trust in him like the Ninevites? That God is the same God of Jonah. In fact, this event of repentance was such a big deal that Jesus quoted it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. Here's what he says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah preached the word of God. Jesus was the word of God. Jonah risked his life to give the message. Jesus gave his life to give them life. That if they would turn, God would turn them over and give them a new start and a million second chances. Do you see it? The power, child of God, to save is not in you. And I know you and I are scared of evangelism. One of my favorite definitions of evangelism is it's two scared people having an awkward conversation. 
It really is. But your job is to share the message. To share the message of what God has done in Christ for them. We leave the results to God. And if revival breaks out, you and I know it's not because of you. Right? There was an Australian um, winter skier called Stephen Badbury. That's B-A-D-B-U-R-Y. Google him when you have the time. Stephen Badbury was a, a winter Olympian from Australia, and he was really bad, I'm just saying. He was like really bad by his own admission. He was last in, yeah, he was really bad. <laughs> he made it to the finals by the skin of his teeth, the finals of the Winter Olympics, by the skin of his teeth in 2002. And in the, the finals, as they're going around the laps, because there are several laps they'd have to do in there as they ski, he was way in the back. I don't mean he was last by a little. I mean he was last by a lot. Like there was the pack of leaders, and then way over there is Stephen Badbury. So they go, they go, they go, and in the final lap, <laughs> in the final lap of the 2002 Winter Skiing Olympics, the first guy tripped. Everyone else tripped. Sa Stephen Badbury flies across them and wins the gold. So you can see the guy crossing the line like, ah, 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 Like, even he doesn't know, are we going to do that again? Like, is that a false start? And guys are like, no, you actually won the gold. Now imagine if you interviewed Stephen Badbury after that and asked him, hey, how does it feel like to win gold? And he's like, well, my strategy was to be last the whole time. Uh, I call it the unpredictable algorithm. You'd be like, come on, man. <laughs> the only reason you won that game is God was merciful to you. Literally, the number two and three slid across. In much the same way, if anyone gets saved because of you, it is despite you, not because of you. It is despite me, not because of me, that I don't have to have eloquence. I don't have to have the theological mass of a Sam Parkinson. I don't have to have the charisma and character of a, a Will Barkley, but I have the gospel. Or as the song says, I have a message from the Lord. Hallelujah. The message unto you I'll give. It's recorded in his word. Hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. Look to Jesus now and live. So if you're here and you're an unbeliever, this is the point of Nineveh's repentance. That if you would turn... God would turn. And you and I who are believers, think about the insane privilege God has given us as a church here in Abu Dhabi. Because this mission is our mission. And God is so kind that rather than send you thousands of kilometers to Tarshish or thousands of kilometers to Africa, he brought the Africans to you. Rather than send you thousands of kilometers to India, he brought the Indians to you. And if you're an astronaut, you'll also find them on the surface of the moon. <laughs> we could go down the list. The Latinos are here. The Asians are Everyone is here. And we can do this mission literally from the comfort of our offices and our houses. And you see, this is our mission, right? To be gospel ambassadors to the nations because we are growing disciples from the nations. I can't wait for the day in heaven when a South Korean comes to shake your hand and says, thank you for sending Pastor Wiley to Ruiz. And you're like, I'm sorry, what? You're Korean. Yeah, and I worked in Ruiz. And that church you planted is the reason I'm in heaven today. Yeah. Yeah. May God do that through us.
May God do that through us. So a few questions as we close. Question number one. Where is it that you feel you've run out of second chances? It might be in this very area of sharing the gospel. Tomorrow when you wake up, his mercies are new every morning. And his second chances are real, legitimate, actual second chances. Where is it you feel, I just keep blowing it. Yeah, your sins, they are many, but his mercy is? Yeah. Here's the second question. Who are the people you feel are too hard for God to save? Jonah probably thought that of Nineveh. The disciples certainly thought that of the Romans. Maybe you have a specific people group in mind. Maybe for you, no, Muslims can't get saved. Yeah, the quality of hard hearts is they're equally hard. Whether a Muslim heart, or a culturally Christian heart, or an atheist heart, God is still the God who plucks out hearts of stone and gives hearts of flesh, fills them with his spirit and moves them to come to him and follow him. So who are those people? Because I have a hunch that God is sending you to them. Maybe they're even your family. Lastly, will we be in awe of the God whose predetermined response is to relent when people repent? Because if we have that vision of God, nothing will stop us from this. And maybe we are the ones who need to repent. Because yes, in one sense we are Jonah, but in another sense we are Ninevites. In Christ we repented. We've come to him. We are now enjoying the freedom he's given us so we can run and repent. Unlike Jonah, we run to our enemies. We don't run away from them. And we don't just do the bare minimum. We give them everything. Let us press in to this merciful God for ourselves and for the dying nations around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us, a people undeserving of your mercy. Lord, would you even now bring to mind people who you are laying on our hearts to share the gospel with? Would you forgive us for where we have refused to share the gospel with people we deem too hard to save? And would you remind us in our deepest and darkest struggles that you give us second chances and you are slowly turning us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.